Sketches from Scripture Presents. Wandering, Wisdom from the Wilderness, a teaching series from the stories of the Torah. Wandering is a teaching series by me, author and filmmaker Paul Andrew Skidmore. In this podcast, we'll be continuing our exploration of the narrative structure and style of the books of the Torah, focusing primarily on the book of Numbers. This study will give us context for a better understanding of Scripture. It will help us trust more in these Scriptures by demystifying them. Taking the stories from the perceived realm of mythology or spiritual mysticism or religious fairy tale and putting them on the ground where they belong. Real words written by real people about real events and real places, all pointing us to a very real God. I hope this podcast reminds you that even in times of wilderness wandering, the Creator of heaven and earth is with you. If you enjoy this podcast, Please share it with others. In this episode, I reference some images. If you'd like to see those images, you can go to skidmore.substack.com, find the post for this particular episode, and the images will be in the body of that post. You can also share this episode by sharing that page with others. So we're going to start just real quickly with the review that we've been doing. The book of Numbers, as we call it, is in the Hebrew. Uh, the Hebrew word for it means in the wilderness. That's the first word of the text. All of the Hebrew uh, names of the books of the Old Testament are the first word of that book. And the first word of Numbers in the Hebrew is in the wilderness. And it's a really cool title and wish that we had adopted that. Uh, we began with the Exodus, so seeing the... Israelites come out of uh, the area sort of around Goshen, which is in the Nile Delta, the green part in the top left of the screen, and uh, how they likely came down around the peninsula and across the uh, Gulf of Aqaba into what is nowadays uh, northwestern Saudi Arabia. And somewhere Mount Sinai is, is there, uh, probably Mount Laws which is in that area, is the most um, viable candidate. And uh, But anyway, they were in the wilderness somewhere in that general area in the desert. Now the 40 years are over. They have been uh, punished, disciplined for 40 years. The whole point being that um, the old generation has died out and the new generation has come. And now they're ready to move on north into uh, to cross over the Jordan River and go to the Promised Land. So just book by book, very quickly, Exodus 1 through 6, uh, Hebrews, Moses, God calling Moses, 7 through 11, the 10 plagues, 12 through 15, the Passover and the Exodus, 16 through 18, the Lord provides between the Exodus and his appearance on Sinai. 19 through 40 is the Lord being on Sinai, and Moses going back and forth, you've got the Ten Commandments, you've got the Lord's glory being seen, you've got um, the instructions for the tabernacle, the building of the tabernacle, you've got the golden calf, you've got God defining himself. A lot, a lot happens there, but it all happens sort of in one location and um, you know, just over a relatively short span of time. Book of Leviticus, um, you know, I'm not sure how long it took for God to give them all the laws that are in Leviticus, but... The narrative parts of Leviticus uh, seem to take, you know, a, a day or two. I mean, it's a very, very, very short span of time that this book actually seems to cover. One through seven are the different offerings that should be offered. 
Um, eight and ten, eight through ten is the ordination of Aaron and his sons, Nadab and Abihu. And of course, we have the story of the judgment of Nadab and Abihu for the apparently very unholy thing that they did in view of all the people. God gave his judgment. And then right behind that gave them a very detailed, exhaustive law. So they would really understand what holiness is and how they were to live and be a holy people in an unholy world. Book of Numbers, uh, one through eight, we've seen the census. We've seen the organization, how they're going to move together as a camp. Nine through 10, we see the second Passover. So they've been now out of Egypt for a year now. They're moving now into the wilderness away from Sinai. Immediately, there's rebellion in 11 and 12 from the people wanting to be fed. Miriam and Aaron challenging Moses' authority. 13 through 14, the spies go into Canaan. 10 come back with a bad report. The nation listens to those 10 rather than listening to Joshua and Caleb, who brought back a good report. They saw the same land and they reported even on the people who were big and powerful in the same way, but they believed that the Lord was with them. And so it was their trust. It was their trusting of the Lord. It was their faith, their trusting of the Lord which is what everyone should have adopted, but um, they were saved because of their trust in the Lord and everyone else is going to die in the wilderness. Uh, 15 through 19, we see stories of rebellion versus holiness. So the man picking up wood on the Sabbath who has to be stoned to death outside the camp. We see um, Korah's rebellion and the others that rebelled with him. And we see signs of holiness. So we see the way the priests are to be treated. We see that they're supposed to wear tassels to remind them of God's commands and that they should obey them. Uh, chapter 20, Moses goes to get water from the rock, takes credit for it himself, for him, for he and Aaron, and they are banished from entering the promised land because of it, because they had an opportunity to show the Lord's glory and they robbed him of that. The Lord showed his holiness anyway, but he did it through judgment rather than through blessing. And then we looked at the fiery bronze serpent, chapter 21, and then last night, Numbers uh, 22 through 25, we looked at the story of Balaam's donkey, which had a lot of humor and that sort of thing. And the the just to recap some of the things that we picked up from that, we noticed that the Lord blesses because he alone is good. No one in the Balaam story is good. Um, that the Lord tells the truth and once is enough. Balaam keeps coming back to the Lord and re-asking things he's already, the Lord has already said. Uh, that the Lord keeps his promises that he says he's going to bless Israel, and he does. We see that the uh, the Lord will make a way to keep his promises. So if somebody is determined to curse someone that the Lord wants to bless, God will, will figure out how to have his way. It's not hard for him. Uh, and we see that we might be in the way of the Lord's promises, that uh, the Lord wants to do something. And just like Moses striking the rock and taking credit for uh, the water coming from the rock, uh, we might be standing in the way of something that the Lord is trying to do. And so um, obviously we want to learn how to avoid doing that. And the lesson from, from Balaam is this, that, that we can either await the Lord's wrath and let him show his holiness through judgment, or we can have our eyes open and bow before him. And uh, so, you know, on either side of the Balaam story, you have... Um, the the story of the of the water from the rock and the fiery serpent and then on the other side of the Balaam story numbers 25 you have where they are prostituting themselves with the women of Moab and there has to be judgment for that and all of those stories from Moses on down to the you know the the, the regular uh, person in the camp you have people who need to have their eyes open 
you know, who are not um, obeying the Lord. They're standing in the way of what the Lord wants to do, and they need to have their eyes opened. And so uh, that leads in to what we're going to talk about tonight in Numbers chapter 26. So let's go ahead and, and we'll read parts of that. I'm not going to read the whole chapter. You know, again, people have said Numbers is really boring. And I think they say that because they think Numbers, the entire book, is nothing but listing of people and names and numbers. And this is not the case. Like chapter one has numbers in it where they do the first census and they count everybody. And this now is what we call the second census. So this is the census of the new generation of Israel that is ready to enter the promised land. And, um, you know, there are certainly some chapters where there's a bunch of names listed and, and you know, the spies going into Canaan, all this sort of thing. But really, I mean, these are the only two chapters with actual numbers in them. And it's not, it's not really that big a deal. And there's so much in the book of Numbers that is uh, exciting and God showing these wonderful signs. And God is with them personally throughout their ordeal. You know, they're going through a discipline, they're going through a punishment, they're out in the desert, but he's giving them manna. He's there visibly with them. He gives them a house of worship where before they they were slaves to a, a pagan nation. And uh, he, he makes them into uh, a nation. He removes them from Egypt and says, hey, you're, you're your own thing. And now I'm going to give you this land that current other people are currently occupying. But um, I've said for centuries now, that land belongs to you. And now I'm going to go give it to you. God's giving them some really amazing things, even during this time. So um, I don't understand why people think Numbers is such a boring book. I think it's really exciting. And again, maybe it's just a PR thing. And I think if we called it In the Wilderness, I think people would think, oh, wow, what an exciting book. So let's look at Numbers chapter 26 and um, see that even though this chapter has numbers in it, it's also, to me, anyway, kind of exciting. And there's some things to be learned from it. So I'll be reading from, looks like the Holman Christian Standard Bible. And this is the second census, Numbers 26 and verse 1. After the plague, the Lord said to Moses and Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest. So this plague that he's talking about here is the one that came among the people uh, because of their um, prostituting with uh, the women of Moab. You know, big no-no. And it killed over 20,000 people. So after that plague, the Lord said to Moses and Eleazar, son of Aaron, the priest. Take a census of the entire Israelite community by their ancestral houses of those 20 years older or more who can serve in Israel's army. This is the exact same way the first census was done. So Moses and Eleazar, the priest, said, so notice in the verse one, it said Moses and Eleazar, son of Aaron, the priest. And so you're kind of wondering, okay, is that Eleazar, son of Aaron, the priest, or is that Eleazar, son of Aaron, the priest? It's kind of hard to distinguish. But we see here in verse three that Eleazar is the priest, right? Moses and Eleazar, the priest said to them in the plains of Moab by the Jordan across from Jericho. So this is right as they're about to cross the river. Take a census of those 20 years old or more as the Lord has commanded Moses and the Israelites who came out of the land of Egypt. Reuben was the firstborn of Israel. Here are Reuben's descendants. This gets into names, numbers, and those sorts of things, which would be really great for you to read sometime, but uh, for time's sake, we're not going to be able to do that tonight. We're going to skip on down to verse 51. So we're skipping, you know, 40 plus verses of names and numbers. We'll get down to verse 51. Look at the final tally here. Those These registered Israelite men numbered 601,730. The Lord, the Lord Moses, 
The land is to be divided among them as an inheritance based on the number of names. Increase the inheritance for a large tribe and decrease it for a small one. Each is to be given its inheritance according to those who are registered in it. The land must be divided by a lot. They will receive an inheritance according to the names of their ancestral tribes. Each inheritance will be divided by a lot among the larger and smaller tribes. So God's saying, hey, we're going to be fair and do a per capita um, allotment of land. And so a tribe that has a bunch of people in it is going to get lots of space and tribes that are smaller are going to get, you know, not as much space. Makes sense, right? And then we have the Levites registered by their clans, and it doesn't give any numbers for those because, um, uh, well, I'll take that back. It says that those registered were 23,000 every male one month old or more. So notice that's not just the 20 years old and up. This is those registered were 23,000 every male one month old or more. And um, that is because they are not part of the army. They are enlisted in the service of the temple. They're enlisted in the service to the Lord. So wrapping up here in verse 63, these were the ones registered by Moses and Eleazar the priest when they registered the Israelites on the plains of Moab by the Jordan across from Jericho. But among them, there was not one of those who had been registered by Moses and Aaron the priest when they registered the Israelites in the wilderness of Sinai. For the Lord had said to them that they would all die in the wilderness. Not one of them was left except Caleb, son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, son of Nun. So this second census makes very clear that the whole old generation was gone, and the, only the new generation remained. Obviously, Moses is still alive, but uh, Caleb and Joshua are the only two who remain. So the Lord has accomplished his purpose. He did what he said he's going to do. And in so doing, has raised up a new Israel, one that has always been completely trusting the Lord, one that does not remember slavery in Egypt, one that um, really only knows obedience to the Lord. That's all they've known. So, you know, this is a really bad example, but I have two dogs, Larry and Matilda. Matilda is Larry's daughter. Larry's a girl. Okay. So when I got Larry and I knew she was a girl, but I just like that name for her. So I thought, what a great dog. You know, she's such a nice dog, but she was about probably a year, year and a half old, maybe, maybe close to two years old. And I didn't really want a puppy because I didn't want to deal with house training, cleaning up and getting everything chewed on and scratching holes in the carpet and all that kind of stuff. So there's this dog and it was a stray at a camp and she was super sweet. And the camp didn't want any more dogs. And I thought, this is what a great dog. I'll take this dog home. And turns out dog was pregnant, which is probably why the family who had her got, got rid of her. And she only had this one puppy, Matilda. Well, Matilda, I began training when she was about three months old. Dogs start remembering things at about six months old. So by the time that she was able to form lasting memories, she already knew how to sit. She already knew how to what her name was, how to come, what her name was called. Uh, she knew that if she had food in her mouth that I got to take it out and she didn't have anything that she could say about that. She couldn't bark. She couldn't scratch. She couldn't bite me. Nothing, you know, no growling was none of that. And so by the time she was one year old, I mean, she's never known her whole life. She's uh, 11, over 11 years old now. She's uh, very much an elderly dog, right? And um, she's never known anything but obedience. Larry, on the other hand, does what she wants, still does what she wants. She had this whole two-year period where who knows who was training her. She seemed to kind of know a few things, kind of be house trained, but um, she just kind of does what she wants. She still kind of does what she wants. But Matilda 
was brought up with obedience. And so she's never known anything but obedience. She will, she doesn't even know that she doesn't have to sometimes, you know, she'll just sit there frustrated. Like, well, why can't I go chase that thing? Not realizing she could just take off and what, well, what am I going to do? Run after her? I'm not going to do that. But she doesn't know that. All she knows is obedience. So really poor example, but that's what has happened through this discipline here in the wilderness. This new generation has been brought up and they've known nothing but trust in the Lord. And anytime they violated that through complaining, or through rebellion, the Lord has shown his holiness and his judgment. And uh, just in case you're curious, here are the differences in the tribes, the census that is done in year two, which is uh, right at the second Passover, and the census that's done in year 40. And you see some of the tribes have decreased. The tribe of Simeon decreased by quite a bit. And you see some of the tribes have increased. Uh, the tribe of Manasseh and Benjamin and Issachar have increased quite a bit, and Asher. So, uh, but the relative number is uh, about the same, about 2,000 less, but the relative number of people, of again, not total people, this is men 20 years and older that can, um, or able-bodied, can serve in the military. So this would, would presumably exclude any elderly men, although we, we know there's not any left at this point, right? So this is the change in case you're just uh, sort of curious about that. So, what, so what's the point here? Why even look at the change? Why even ask what the change here is? Well, the change is not in the numbers, of course, right? Despite the title of the book. The change is in the people, is in the obedience, is in the trust. The change is in the maturity of the nation. That's the real change that we ought to look at and measure. The numbers actually don't mean anything. Again, why it's not a great title for the book, right? What we're looking at is how is it different? And why did it take this really harrowing experience for the nation to learn the things that it needed to learn? Uh, it's not like this was a surprise to God that they were gonna get out there and be rebellious, right? So it's almost like this probably was sort of built into whatever was happening before. Uh, Madeline Lingle, who wrote A Wrinkle in Time, she also wrote a, a book that's sort of um, personal essays, a little bit of autobiography. It's called The Rock That Is Higher, Story as Truth. And she says, perhaps conflict is the tightening of the violin string so that the bow moving across it will make music. Let me read that again. Perhaps conflict is the tightening of the violin string so that the bow moving across it will make music. What does that mean? Well, I think what she's trying to say is maybe it's these hard times that pr provide some tightness that expose something about our choices, about our thinking, about our fears, about what we're truly thankful for. And when we can really start to see who we are and we begin to grow in that, we begin to grow because of that resistance, that there's sort of this beautiful, this beautiful music that happens from that. You know, no one working out gains muscle or health if they work out with no resistance, right? You need at least the resistance of gravity in order for your workout to really do any good or mean anything. Most people use weights of some kind, right? Or they run uphill or they go upstairs. They use a, like a Stairmaster kind of thing. You need some kind of conflict that's going to uh, draw out the benefit of whatever it is that you're going through. Conflict is difficult, but it is conflict 
that helps us uh, mature. It exposes where we are strong, and for that we can be thankful, and it exposes where we are weak and the things that we need to work on and strengthen. And there's something beautiful uh, about that whole journey. So, you know, I asked you uh, these things here, and when we read the story of the first census, you know, it was just less than two weeks ago. Um, I'll put the slide back up here so you can see it. Uh, just ask you these things a few minutes ago. When we first talked about the first census, it was about two weeks ago. And at that time, things were a little scary. You know, we were looking at heading into a time of unknowns. We were looking at heading into um, some some peak medical things. And we were, nobody was super sure how that was going to go. We'd seen other nations in, in Europe and elsewhere having some really difficult times. We, we worried that would our entire nation be that way? And certainly uh, New York and New Jersey has had a really difficult time. Uh, but even there, some of the things we feared, you know, didn't take place. We may haven't run out of beds. They haven't run out of ventilators. They uh, haven't run out of, um, you know, certainly many people have died. But according to what the governor of their state is saying, no one has died because there was lack of care. It was just people that they were unable to help. And we're sad by that. But um, there's certainly it's a different situation than maybe we were fearing going into this time. Maybe you have, um, I mean, just think even, okay, so like I came down here, this is, uh, maybe there'll be too much information here, but I came down here to, to visit for three days. Mom and dad were watching the dogs while I was in Memphis back in February. And I thought, I'll come down, I'll pick the dogs up, stay with mom and dad for a couple of days and then go back home. And so I packed for three or four days. I've been here for over a month, which is why you've seen me wear a lot of the same t-shirts in these, in these uh, lessons. Uh, really wish I'd brought more than uh, the four or five pairs of underwear that I happened to pack. Just glad I packed extra, you know, <laughs> based on what I thought, I, how long I thought I was going to stay. And I'm thankful mom and dad, you know, are glad to do laundry whenever. But, um, you know, it's like, boy, I would have done some things different if I'd known that this was coming. And so I came down here. And the first couple of days, it's like, well, I'll stay an extra day or two. Well, maybe I'll stay a week and see how this thing, if see if it blows over, if it's just, you know, um, just a bunch of nonsense or if it's for real. And now here it is, it's been over a month and it's looking like, you know, things are starting to look up. Things are starting to look like maybe we can uh, get some things back to normal, but that still is going to take two, four, six weeks and going through these different phases of opening back up and that sort of thing. And so things were a lot different at the beginning of this than they are than how they turned out. We had fears at the beginning, and now we have some understanding now that maybe we didn't have. Um, certainly, uh, the things that we're thankful for now are different than the things we were thankful for a month and a half ago. Uh, in our grocery delivery order, um, the two deliveries ago, we were finally able to get toilet paper. We've been asking for it every delivery order. We finally got some. It's like, oh, really thankful for toilet paper. At what time in history were we ever thankful for toilet paper? I mean, you're almost like trying to hide it in the cart. It's like, oh, I, you know, even though everybody uses it, it's like it's a bathroom thing. We don't want people to know about it or look at it, you know, just kind of get it. And nobody cares about it. Nobody talks about it. And then suddenly it was, became something that we were <laughs> really thankful to have, you know, um, so uh, they had uh, a lot of the items, even some of the stranger things that we wanted today. They didn't have everything we wanted, but even some of the, the odd items that we wanted today, they had. And we were really thankful for that. These are things we just took for granted really before. So think about uh, the ways your values have been shifted because you've been in this time of, you know, being in the wilderness, being in a time of 
unknowns, being in a time of, um, hey, when you're forced to sit at home and you get tired of watching TV and you get, you know, there's not much to do and you're tired of playing games or working on the puzzle or whatever, sometimes you just sit and you think, or you sit out on the front porch and you think, or you go for a walk and you think, and a lot of your normal thinking that you don't get to do, all that kind of burns off. And then you start getting into these, these questions and these fears and these doubts and, and these desires that, um, you know, maybe you haven't had to deal with for a while because you've been so busy, because you've had a lot of movement, you've had a lot of people in your life, you've had a lot of, um, you know, TV watching and Netflix and all this kind of stuff. And at some point, when when you sort of strip all those things away and you're forced to sort of deal with some of these things that are going on inside, for a lot of people, there's been a lot of depression and things that have gone on the last few weeks because they've all these things have cropped up and maybe they don't have a church family. Maybe they don't have spiritual understanding. Even many in our church family have had to deal with uh, different depression than they're used to during this time because it's just what happens. The stuff comes up. So, so, so what about that? You know, we look at this time of being in the wilderness and it is something definitely that sculpts us and shapes us. And that's the thing that I want to talk about in our last few minutes here. Uh, I give a long talk. I won't give the long talk tonight, but I give a long talk about Michelangelo's Pieta. And a lot of the notes uh, that I give on this are from a book by a guy named Ken Geyer. And his book is called uh, Shaped by the Cross, I believe is the name of the book, but it's about suffering and how suffering forms us. You know, um, uh, this is something for us to, to think about. So let's uh, look at just some of these pictures here. And I've, I've been able to see this in person. It's a really magnificent work of art. This is Michelangelo's Pieta. It's currently in St. Peter's Basilica in the Vatican in uh, Rome in Italy. It depicts Mary holding her son Jesus after the crucifixion before his burial. So he's just been taken down from the cross. Michelangelo finished it at age 24. He began it at age 23 and was given a year to complete it. This was two years before he did the David. This is quite possibly the most just masterful work of art ever done. Certainly that is still in existence. And he did it entirely on his own. He was the author and finisher of this piece, seeing it through from its inception all the way to putting on the final touches. Even the back is sculpted marvelously, even though it's up against a wall and no one sees it. The sash across Mary's chest reads, Michael Angelus Bonratus Florent Faciabat, which means Michelangelo Bonarati of Florence made this. So his name appears on his handiwork. And it sits in a small chapel in St. Peter's Basilica. Michelangelo selected the stone himself from the quarry in Carrara. And just a side note for my Cleveland friends, once the uh, libraries open back up, you can go to the historical branch and the fireplaces in the historical branch have Carrara marble. Uh, they're, they're all sculpted out of Carrara marble. And so if you want to ever touch Carrara mar marble, you can go to the historical branch of the Cleveland Public Library. So he selected the stone himself from his favorite quarry. And just look how deep the turn of the stone, the large chunks that have been removed, the space between her, her head, her chin, and, and Jesus' stomach, the, the gap under her 
robe, the space under Jesus's knees. How deep the turn of the stone. And look at the folds of the cloth, how detailed and how many there are. How it looks like you could just run Mary's robe through your fingers and, and, and feel the texture and then remind yourself this is solid marble. Look how thin Christ's skin appears on his muscles, on his bones. How heavy Mary's sorrow is in her face as she looks the dead body of her son. Mary's open hand asks every observer, what will you do with my son? What will you do with Jesus? It's said that Michelangelo carved in a fury from first light to dark and then threw himself across his bed without supper and fully clothed like a dead man. He would awake around midnight, refreshed, his mind seething with sculptural ideas, craving to get at the marble. As we start to make an analogy here, you know, how compassionate, how passionate our God is working on his masterpiece, the church. He works on each of us one stone at a time, never stopping, always working. Michelangelo worked at night, but he couldn't see and his lamps were no good. So he fashioned a wire band around his head and affixed a candle to it so that he could get up and do fine, close work at night. God does that. God gets close. His light comes close. He inspects everything. He gets down into the deep crevices of our heart. And are we ready for that? And it hurts so much to be sculpted for God to break away huge pieces from us. We say, I need that. Or it's who I am. I, I was born this way. God, did, didn't you make me like this? Didn't you make me this way? This is the face of the David, also by Michelangelo. Geyer says, the stone wants to be stone, but the artist wants it to be art. And so we live, we've talked about since Genesis, living in this ambiguity. We live in both of these places. You know, are we good? Are we bad? Well, we're, we're a little bit of both. We're made in God's image, but we're selfish from our youth. We're evil from our youth. You know, we want to continue being stone, but the artist wants us to be art. And so we're a work in progress, much like these. These are also done by Michelangelo and are unfinished. And you can see they're like figures trapped in the unfinished stone. You can still see Michelangelo's handiwork in the unfinished places that have not been smoothed out. And the work in progress is neither stone nor art. It's not at home in the quarry or in the gallery. And don't we feel that way sometimes as people of faith? Sculpture is, is both violent and abrasive. It is violent in that it is removing big things from us, but it is also abrasive in that it is slowly polishing over time. Look how smooth the Pieta is, how fine a tool, how small an abrasion, how much time did it take to polish to that type of shine. This reminds us that time, tension, tumbling, break, breaking, abrasions, battle, conflict, contact, destruction, war. It's these things that take a rough, useless stone and make it into something smooth and pleasing and beautiful. It's the same with Michelangelo's Pietà, with the David, with 
David's smooth stones that he takes from the creek to slay Goliath. They're shaped and smoothed over time, tumbled, polished, broken, decimated, destroyed into something beautiful. And one of the things that Geyer says in his book is that we should learn to love the person we are becoming more than the person we are losing. That we should learn to love the person we are becoming more than the person we are losing. As John the Baptist would say in the Gospels, I must become less, he must become greater. And we feel the tension of that in our lives. In his final years, Michelangelo scribbled this in the margin of his sketches, Ancora Imparo, and yet I am learning. And just reminds me of something from scripture. Actually, it's something from the film, The Passion of the Christ, if you've seen the film, you remember this moment where Jesus is carrying the cross and has no friend, no one who has remained beside him. His mother follows from a distance and seeing him at the end of an alley, she sees him fall and stumble and she runs toward him. And even people that hate this film cry at this moment, seeing the mother running helplessly towards the son. She cannot help. And when she gets there and he looks at her, we wonder what he is going to say to her. And it is so surprising, even those of us that know the events of this story well, because Jesus looks at her and in the film says to her, look, I make all things new. It's a beautiful moment in the film. And yet this line is not from the gospels. It is not from the passion, but it is something that Jesus says in the Bible, but he doesn't say it in the gospels. He says it in Revelation as he is seated upon the throne. It's one of the last things recorded that Christ says in the gospel, just like Michelangelo's quote, and still I am learning. One of the last things Jesus says is, look, I make all things new. That's his legacy. And how beautiful it was for the filmmakers to put that line here at this moment of greatest grief, greatest despair, greatest sorrow, greatest loneliness, greatest helplessness. So when everything is broken and bloody and defeated and torn apart and thrown into the street and thrown to the ground and exhausted under the weight of shame that Christ proclaims his victory and says, behold, I make all things new. And so, as we think about how we've been shaped, even just through the wilderness that we've been in the last few months, but, but think over your whole life, we're always faced with this choice. Are we going to just await the Lord's wrath for our selfishness? Or are we going to have our eyes opened and allow ourselves to grow and to be changed and to mature? Are we going to allow ourselves to mature? I suspect many of you listening, I know a lot of you, I know you're very faithful members of good churches. And so I know for many of you, while we all still struggle with sin, I know many of you do not have uh, sin ruling your life and ruining things in your life and hurting yourselves and others in a great way. Many of you trust and follow the Lord deeply. But how many of you are making disciples? How many of you are reaching out to the lost around you? How many of you are uh, truly serving your community with truth, not just with food or money? That's something that I really want to challenge us on in terms of our maturity and our growth. And so that's the question I want to leave you with tonight. What is the Lord making new in you? That's the lesson of the second census. Discipline comes, trouble comes, the wilderness comes, the wandering comes. And at the end, something has been made new. 
Sketches from Scripture is a production of Parabolos, the production company of author and filmmaker Paul Andrew Skidmore. Subscribe to this podcast and more at skidmore.substack.com.